Well, the scriptures are full of verses that get memorized, used, and prayed. Uh, some verses are more familiar to us than others. Uh, take, for instance, John chapter 3, verse 16, and I'm going to kind of warm up your voices here because I need a little participation. Uh, you can likely say it with me, can you not? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. <laughs> We're very familiar with that verse. And speaking of familiar verses, let's see if you can help me finish some of these. So you'll lift up your voices. I'll leave a pause here at the end of it for you to fill in. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's right. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, our verses today in verses 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. You may have noticed that all these familiar verses are taken from one New Testament letter called Philippians. What an interesting thing, right? A letter that is four pages long lands on our hearts and our spirits so heavily that we have memorized or thought through or often prayed these texts. It's duly named, the little letter, because of chapter 1, verse 1, where uh, Paul introduces, and Timothy is there certainly with him authoring this, maybe even co-authoring. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. Philippi, located in present-day Greece, had an ancient history, and after the region was conquered by Greece in the 3rd century B.C., the region and the city were renamed. The city of Philippi was named after its king, King Philip II, who was the father of, do you know, here's your Alexander the Great, you don't get any turkey. You didn't answer. All salad for you. All right? King Philip II, <laughs> who was uh, the father of Alexander the Great. Almost 200 years later, uh, the city itself had kind of become unknown and, and would likely have just kind of fallen out of history. It was centered around gold mines and, and things like that, and all that had been exhausted. But uh, maybe you know your history in, in knowing in 168 B.C., the Romans conquered the Greeks, but when Rome, uh, the Roman king Julius Caesar was assassinated, his assassins were hunted down and defeated just outside the city of Philippi. So Caesar Augustus, Rome's new leader, memorialized Philippi, making it an official Roman colony, and he gave uh, all the inhabitants of, of that colony, that little town, Philippi, uh, citizenship. One commentator noted that in addition to Philippi's adoption of Roman customs, veteran soldiers, along with their families, were sent there to live. 
As a matter of fact, one out of every 10 Roman citizens in towns like Philippi were decorated veterans or members of veterans' families. This practice enabled Roman, uh, the Roman Empire to spread out, right, to kind of keep control, and also it, it enabled them to foster an amount of patriotism as, the, as, as, uh, as that uh, government in, in that nation grew. So it is, dear friends, that the Apostle Paul and Timothy were writing to a church in a town much like Cheyenne, and that Philippi was a town full of patriotism and military veterans. This little letter titled Philippians is only about four pages long. However, as already noted, it contains some of the most referred to, memorized, and prayed through texts in our entire New Testaments. Have you ever paused to ask why Christians so often turn to the book of Philippians? I wonder if it is not because its content describes much of what Christians often face, much of what we face. In chapter 1, we find Paul imprisoned for preaching the gospel to a world that rejects, listen here, a narrow way to heaven. Can we identify that a little bit with that? Ask, if, if somebody in the world asks you why you believe the things that you believe and you tell them uh, uh, simply that there is only one way to heaven, when they would like to believe, and all of us, honestly, I think if we're honest with ourselves, would like to believe there are many paths. But we know that's not true. There's one way. Maybe we can identify a little bit uh, with this reality that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Notice the way and the truth and the life. And how many people come to the Father outside of him? None. No one comes to the Father but through me. Beloved, perhaps we can connect with this letter uh, so well because uh, we know, as chapter 1 reveals, that if we teach the narrow truth... (laughs) about heaven and hell, the world will hate and persecute us just like they did Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Not only was Paul in prison as he wrote this short letter, um, but there were also so-called Christians, you'll remember in chapter 1, outside his prison walls who were attacking him and his character. They were doing so in an effort to keep him imprisoned. In our vernacular, we, we would say something like this, with, with friends like that, we don't need enemies, right? They thought Paul was a false teacher. They didn't like Paul's narrow preaching, and so they, they were outside the walls as he is in this, this Roman prison and, uh, or is tied to, at this point in time, to a Roman card, and they are doing all they can to undermine the gospel. And if that meant preaching the gospel, in order to keep him in there, he would go ahead and keep, uh, they would do that. The interesting thing, is it not? Beloved, perhaps we connect with this letter so well because we have experienced so-called Christians who are more interested in our failure than they are in our successes. And so often they bring their divisiveness to the church and and to us, just like they did to the Apostle Paul in the name of Jesus. Not only were those on the outside lying about the pressure 
uh, in, uh, that was, or pressuring, excuse me, uh, Paul's emotions, but he had found out that there were problems inside the church that he had planted at Philippi. And I can tell you as a pastor, there's perhaps nothing that measures up to the inner turmoil a church leader faces than when there is divisiveness inside the church walls. Those situations are antithetical, and I would even say severely hypocritical, when God's people who claim to be God's people are arguing, fighting, not forgiving, not loving. The world is supposed to know the church by their love for one another. How many people today in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or in this region are sitting at home right now because the church wouldn't be the church? They came and they got frustrated and somebody was angry about the color of the carpet or the, or the, the kind of heat or whatever it might be, some other ridiculous thing and, 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 and in an unwillingness to forgive and just act like Christ and, and love like Christ, love other people who deserved uh, all kinds of justice, but we would love and forgive like Christ forgave. That, why, why is it that the church can't just be like Jesus is to us? How many people are sitting this morning, maybe depressed, maybe anxious, maybe, maybe just lives falling apart, who have given their lives to Christ, but they have no place for the church because the church acts like hell instead of heaven? The pressure of knowing that the church was in turmoil for Paul would have certainly created an opportunity for severe anxiety. But perhaps we connect with this letter so well because we have so often seen difficulties and divisions inside the church. Oh, dear friends, if the church would only express the same kind of patience, the same kind of love, the same kind of forgiveness for each other that we need and receive from Jesus every day, <laughs> the world might see us as a light on a hill and be attracted. So it was that there were divisions between members inside the church at Philippi, but chapter 3 also reveals that there were pseudo-Christian false teachers attempting to influence the church at Philippi. And the Apostle Paul did not mince words when he called them dogs and evil workers. And inasmuch as there were apostate, fake Christian organizations in the first century paving people's way to eternal punishment, there are also many pseudo-Christian organizations today doing the same. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are full of culturally kind people but deny the deity of Christ. And if living in the apostles' day, they too would have been at the end of Paul's finger being called a dog and an evil worker. Maybe we've cleaned up our language a little bit too much in our effort to be culturally acceptable. So it is, beloved, we often connect with this letter to the Philippians because it's easy, isn't it, to find ourselves in the same scenarios as Paul only 2,000 years later. That is, Christians find themselves persecuted for narrow preaching, lied about by self-righteous so-called Christians pressured by divisions within the church and, and, and concerned about false teachers who are constantly trying to, to get into the church and lead the church astray. 
With all this going on in the apostle's life, even the possibility of death, we might think that anxiety would kill Paul before the Romans did. And no doubt, being like you and I, he had to learn how to combat that anxiety and worry. And not only did he, he shared that wisdom with us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, revealing that thankful prayer produces the peace of God. You might write that down. It's kind of the big idea for today. It's what the text shares. It's what it teaches. Thankful prayer produces the peace of God. Beloved, one day we will all be veterans of this Christian life. We're going to pass away lest the Lord tarries, right? And we will be decorated soldiers with new eternal bodies in that day, and we will serve in a new kingdom under a new king, Jesus. Amen? But until then, we must learn how to combat anxiety through thankful prayer, which results in the peace of God. Amen? We're in this world. We're stuck in it. Anxious times around us all the time, individually, nationally, internationally. Anxiety knocking at your door. Will we have enough? Will the economy keep going? Will World War III break out? Will all the trucks shut down and there won't be food in your fridge? How's this going to work out? Thankful prayer is how Paul is going to tell us that we can attain to the peace of God. Notice, however, that Paul first mentions the enemy of peace, saying in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Ask a veteran or anyone who is currently serving, and they will tell you in order to win a war, you must know what you are warring against. And in this case, Paul is making it clear it is anxiety. I spent a little time in my study looking at and thinking through uh, the word anxious uh, this week, and, and by and large, I, I can uh, tell you, as I mentioned already in the, in the, in the sermon, that, that there are weird pressures that come upon a, a pastor. And I find it interesting that uh, when Paul wrote the Corinthian church and he, he began to, to name out all the reasons why he was an apostle, and he talked about being beat uh, 40 times minus one and thrown in many prisons and shipwrecked on many times at many seas, on and on and on he went. Uh, and the very last thing that he tells uh, them in all those horrific situations that Paul had been in, he says, add to this the daily pressure of all the churches. What's going to happen? Who's going to come in? What fight's going to start? Who's going to try and uh, lead them astray into false doctrine? And as a pastor, you become acutely aware of nearly each situation that is going on in the church, people who are disgruntled, upset, mad at you, mad at others. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. So it landed. It hit me. I was grateful that the Lord laid this sermon on, on my plate, so I had a little bit of time to look into this word, this word anxiety. Its synonyms are being nervous, concerned, uneasy, apprehensive, restless, fretful, 
eager, and most commonly we, we, uh, we, we tie the, the word to worry to our word anxious. Anxiety, I, I found this to be very interesting, is different from fear, and that fear is divine, defined as an emotional response to a present tense threat. I'm fearful, right? I'm going to fall off of something or somebody's going to uh, harm me or, or whatever. That is fear. And fear is this emotional response. It's fight or flight. However, anxiety is an emotion that is characterized by inner turmoil. How many? I loved that word when I came across it. You might call anxiety inner turmoil. There is something going on on the inside of my life, right? I'm wrestling with something. It includes feelings of dread concerning anticipated events, things that are going to happen in the future, not the things that are happening now. That is, the event has not happened, right? But anxiety arises internally as one meditates upon an event that is future chance or yet to come. Not only does anxiety produce inner turmoil, but also that turmoil often, if not always, produces physical symptoms. I found this to be interesting and then began to wonder, huh, I wonder why I... I'm not feeling all that well right now. Here's some of the symptoms. Some of them are neurological symptoms like headaches and vertigo come from anxiety. Digestive symptoms are are those of abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, and indigestion. Add to that shortness of breath. I've experienced this just in the last few weeks. Heart palpitations, chest pain, pressure in the chest, muscle fatigue, and tremors. It can also produce excessive perspiration, itchy skin, and several urogenital problems, which are not appropriate to speak of from the pulpit. But one included in there was one that I had never heard of that I hope I never experience, called chronic pelvic pain syndrome, all from inner turmoil, all from worry, concern, anxiety about things we have no control over tomorrow that may or may not happen, fearful of what somebody meant at work or what my wife might have meant by this or, or, or just anything that might come into this realm of worry. Therefore, anxiety is the enemy of our souls and inner turmoil about stuff that might happen in the future. Hopefully that helps us to begin to understand what it is that we're speaking of. Experiencing it may happen because of a school or professional test that you're getting ready to take. Have you ever taken one of those? Like, oh, I just worked for five years, and if I don't pass this test, I'm not, I'm not going through the finish line. Or at school, I know Matthew, my youngest son, was up here at 6 in the morning yesterday taking a test for his chemistry. I think it was the chemistry. Where's Matthew? Where'd he go? He's apostate. He's left. He's probably taking a test right now. <laughs> he was up here and he was nervous. I was down here. We were getting ready to cook uh, turkeys. We were in here at 6 a.m. Didn't get home last night till about 9.30. And, and he was up here, lights were on, and typing away, taking his test. And he had a little anxiety. How about this? Maybe anxiety comes because of a question that you need to pop, like, will you marry me? Has any man ever felt that anxiety? Or would you go on a date with me? Maybe you'll get rejected. 
It might result from knowing that you have a difficult conversation with a sibling or a a spouse or an employer that is coming in the near future. Anxiety may very well be a conjunction of multiple difficult issues that that are all coming together like a confluence into a river that are presented at the same time. Beloved, if we allow anxiety to reign, not only will there be an internal damage to our emotional self, but it can, and as we just noted, does in fact affect the quality of our physical lives as well. So we can see that, that, that anxiety, right, is, it's an attack on the whole person. It's internally tumultuous. You, you can't think well. Just in the last couple of weeks, I, there was a situation that was going on here that was causing me to, to just go over something over and over and over, and I just wasn't catching it. And finally, after sitting for three hours trying to prep for sermon writing, and I haven't written a single word, I realized I'm anxious. I can't think. I'm consumed by thinking about something that may not even be true. <laughs> Stop. might help to know the same Greek word, merimnao, as behind our English word anxious here in verse 6 is used by Jesus multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. It is there that merimnao translates as anxious, um, uh, translated there as anxious in our text, gets translated into the English word worry. Jesus, after teaching his disciples that they could not serve both God and wealth, said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Right there, that word behind it is merimnao. You could replace it and say, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious about your life. Matthew 6, 27, he continues on, and who of you by being, we can say, anxious can add a single hour to his life. Matthew 6, 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies in the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin, or, or, or they are not trying to earn their wage. Matthew 6, 31. Do not be anxious, you could say there. Saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? All future tense things. Matthew 6, 34. So, Do not, we can say, be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Doesn't that just, just it's healing to hear the Lord's words there, right? Don't do it. (laughs) Love don't do it. We couldn't control all of the things that, that, that are going to happen tomorrow in such a way that we would ever get the outcome we think anyway. Don't worry. Each day will have a trouble of its own. Beloved, the Apostle Paul did not just hear the teaching of Jesus, but clearly believed it, saying to the Christians in Philippi, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Don't worry. The turkey's going to be good. It's going to be all right. Well, it sounds nice to be anxious for nothing. I certainly... I want to practice that. I want that to be a more and more real attribute of my own life. But if you live very long, you'll know that anxiety is not an enemy that 
gets defeated once and goes away forever. Rather, it is forever knocking on our door. And when the Christian graduates from this world and becomes a veteran of this Christian battle, we will enjoy eternal peace. But until then, we need to know how to fight this battle. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are the prescription for our constant need. So how is it that we can fight this battle while we are on this battlefield? Paul answers the question in the remainder of verse 6 there, be anxious for nothing but in everything. The opposite, right? The conjunction, but don't, do, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And another place, uh, the Apostle Paul will We'll, we'll teach that we should take every thought captive. Just stop for a second and think about that. I'm sure people have done studies on trying to figure out how many thoughts per second you have or even per day or year or whatever. Paul is going to say, take every one of those captive and subject it to Christ Jesus. Ask yourself, is, is that going to move me towards Christ? Is that going to honor Christ? Is, is the result of meditating on that text going to, to create a positive outflow of light and salt to the, to the world? Stop it. Catch it. Take it captive. In everything, be anxious for nothing, the opposite, but in everything, right? Everything by prayer and supplication, and notice there, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There are three different Greek words behind prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Some pastors teach that each one of these is different words, or these different words, excuse me, is a different kind of prayer. Although there are some good reasons to think that that may be true, the Greek grammar likely best describes that Prayer and supplication are meant to be synonymous. That is, describing the same thing. I don't think in this setting it's likely he is not trying to give us three answers, but an answer. Not only does the Greek grammar lead one in that direction, but we can see in English that the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lumps them into one idea at the end of the sentence. That is this, right? Let your requests... Those are the prayers and the supplications being made known to God. Therefore, friends, on the backside of verse 5, if you look up just a couple or one verse, uh, you'll see it, it affirms that the Lord is near. Paul is effectively saying when we begin to feel anxiety about the things that we cannot control in the future, we should have a conversation with and make our requests to the Lord who is near. Near is near. But notice that those requests must be made with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Not like some name it and claim it or word of faith theology where we tell God what we think we need and if we have enough faith, we receive it. No. <laughs> the idea of thankfulness is 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 not to thank God in prayer for receiving what we do not have. Rather, it is in thankfulness that we can even approach God who would listen to such sinful beings as you and I. As you and I. 
The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 12, uh, verses 28 and 29, since we, being Christians, receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that would bring some peace to your life right there. In the kingdoms of the world and the wars and the rumor of wars that are going on right now, we can take a lot of comfort, a lot of peace comes from the idea that, that Christ's kingdom will never be shaken. When he sets that up, it will never go away. As recipients of that kingdom, wow, we could just pause, right? Say amen and go eat some turkey. Since we have received a kingdom which, which cannot be shaken, let us show what? Gratitude, at which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. I am so appalled sometimes when I hear prayer or even preaching that is like demanding, like a demanding two-year-old to God, telling him what you're going to get and telling him how to expect it and telling him that he must move in this way. So antithetical to the, to the heartbeat and the spirit of the writer of Hebrews here, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. We would come as slaves and say, Lord, if you would accept me as sinner, I would serve you with reverence and with awe. And why? For our God is a consuming fire. Where is the fear of the Lord in the church today? Where is it? People come and people go and they kind of just act like the church and God is just the kind of big giant Santa Claus that gives you whatever you need whenever you want it. All through the word, our God is a consuming fire. We should come with reverence, with gratitude. Beloved, there should never be a time when we come to God in prayer and supplication without thanksgiving and gratitude for saving sinners like me and you. <laughs> it is common, and I argue correct, for us to respond to folks who ask how we are doing, regardless of the quality of our lives in that moment, by saying better than I deserve. We hear it, and maybe it's popularized by some speakers, and it, it certainly is, but there is truth in it. Better. On my worst day, dying from some horrible disease and family hating me and, and everybody leaving me alone. That's better than deserving, than what I deserve, which is hell, eternal punishment. One more breath that I get is better than that. One more misery that I'm experiencing in my family is, is better than that. You see, friends, no sinful human being deserves an unshakable eternal kingdom. Every genuine Christian knows that we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. And we can come in gratitude, and we can come with thanksgiving, and we can come and bow down, and we can worship. Because amazing is the grace that saves sinners like us. Every genuine Christian knows that we deserve hell, and every genuine Christian reveals in the uh, 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 revels, excuse me, in the truth of John three sixteen, knowing that God gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Friends, I, I don't know you all. I certainly don't know the, the condition of your hearts and whether you have believed or not, but that promise is for the world. Quit fighting, quit being anxious, quit running from God. Put your faith in Christ. These things that happen here on this world are temporal, and our God is a consuming fire. And this is a short life that we get to live. Put your faith in Christ. So, beloved, Paul wrote, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And why? Because the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, think with me as we get ready to wrap up this, this, uh, this teaching Attempt to comprehend for just a moment the amount of peace that Creator God has in Himself. <laughs> he is not worried about the past, the present, or He is not at any level anxious about what's going to happen in the next second or the next one or tomorrow. He has an all sovereign plan for every atom in the universe. He is not wringing His hands wondering how our situations will turn out or even who we will turn to in, uh, uh, or who will turn to him in salvation, who will actually believe what, what, what I just read to you, that whosoever believes, he's not worried about that. He already knows. He is, as verse 9 says, if you just skip down there and, and look at it, the God of peace. He's the God of peace. If there's such a thing as peace, and there is, he is the God of it. Now, there are a couple of ways to understand receiving this promise of peace. Either we, as God's people, in times of anxiousness, after entering into thankful prayer, receive a measure. So it's kind of a, a call and response, maybe, is, is some people's idea that when we do this, then there'll be a response of God's peace in our life. And I think there's, at least in part, some truth to that. Secondly, and very familiar um, we can uh, understand that receiving the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension is only found in the meditating on the person and the ministry of Christ Jesus. Therefore, the peace of God is always available to Christians in Christ. Why? God's incomprehensible work for sinners has already been done. And and in this view, in other words, when we are experiencing times of anxiety about the nature of things of this world, we are to thankfully pray and be reminded that this world is not our home. And when we do so, we will take our eyes off of the inner turmoil of our moment and experience God's peace as we meditate upon the promises of eternity to come through our Lord and Savior Jesus. This fits the line of spiritual encouragement Jesus gave to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. After telling him that they would abandon him in his hour of need, he said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The beloved Jesus effectively tells his disciples that they, in the midst of tribulation, can have peace in his victory over the world. 
So whether we receive some kind of measure out of peace, I, I don't know how it works in that spiritual realm. Um, so whether we receive a measure of the kind of peace God uh, uh, exists in when we engage in thankful prayer or whether we experience God's peace when we remind ourselves that this world is not our home, the promise is that thankful prayer will produce that peace. Amen? Philippians 8, or 4, 8 and 9, right there in your text, the follow-up verses, are very much part of this thought concerning peace on this battlefield of our life. They help to manage what so often drags us, drags us excuse me, into anxiety, and that is our thought life. Remember I mentioned just a little bit earlier that, that Paul would, would encourage Christians, those in Corinth, take every single thought captive. He moves on to this, and maybe we could say that, that as we look back into the text, into the text that, that the peace of God that surpasses all the comprehension will guard our heart. That may, maybe has a reference to how we view Christ and we, we know that God's peace will guard our heart knowing that he has overcome the world. Now it says, and your minds. And it is so often our minds, right, that drag us into anxiety. It's our thought life, the stuff that we are not catching or capturing and, and subjecting to Christ. Paul instructs those who are being drugged down by anxious thoughts saying this. Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, I love this, this clause, dwell on these things. Pause, right? Are you anxious? Are you struggling? Are you worried? Are you thinking about future things that you can't control? Are they causing you to be ineffective? Maybe they're causing physical uh, uh, damage to your own body. <laughs> Stop. Capture them. Dwell on these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, dwell on those. Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, we can pause. Paul is in prison. He is, he is uh, no doubt being tempted by, by those, those, those uh, frenemies that he has on the outside. He's concerned about the division inside the church between uh, Yodiki and, and Syntyche that, that, that show up there in chapter 4 and whatever divisions those are causing. He's worried about somebody that is in the church teaching false doctrine, or he's, I don't know that he's worried about it, but he is experiencing the, the potential of that. Whatever have you seen in me, is what he's telling to Philippi, who are right here in prison for preaching narrowly, <laughs> for all these other things that are going on. Practice these things, and the peace, and the God of peace will be with you. Beloved, take those thoughts captive. Dwell on that which is praiseworthy. How can we have peace in anxious times? We must dwell on the praiseworthy things and offer thankful prayer, and the God of peace will be with us. Amen? Let's pray.